Using artificial intelligence, analysts at Govini have built a digital twin of the U.S. industrial base, and it's a disturbing picture. Govini's analysis shows how far behind the United States military is in bringing new technology to bear. The technical edge is dulling, you might say. For details on its latest national security scorecard, we turn to Govini CEO Tara Murphy-Darty. Tara, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. And this latest edition, I noticed in the foreword, which you and Bob Work, of course, the chairman, have mentioned this digital twin of the defense industrial base. Tell us what that is exactly. So if we just start with the concept of a digital twin, I'm sure many of your readers are familiar with this in various capacities, but I would just describe it as a virtual representation of a physical object of some kind. And what we've done in creating a digital twin of the U.S. defense industrial base is map all of the companies, the capabilities, and the capital that flows among them that underpin national security. That's actually a global picture, not just an American one, but it's the best representation from a data-driven perspective of all of those facets of the industrial base, which as you mentioned in your opening, are absolutely critical to U.S. military competition with China. And the military, it's safe to say, knows that it needs to get new technology over the valley of death and so on into operational capability for war fighters. And golly, the events of the last few weeks seem to really drive this point home, the importance of it. But what does the digital twin cry out to us? What is it saying? It's saying that acquisition process that you just described, which is how the Department of Defense gets military capabilities to the warfighter eventually, is too slow, it's overly complex, and its burdensome nature is preventing the United States from getting the best capabilities out into the field. I actually think you put it perfectly. The technological edge of the United States is dulling. And what the scorecard highlights out of the digital twin of the industrial base are a range of problem areas that are essentially creating that dulling effect. One would be a gap between strategy and spending. Another would be the fact that our supply chains are replete with Chinese entities, including prohibited ones. And then certainly there's an aspect as well of reduced or unavailable capacity within the industrial base from a production and manufacturing perspective, something that absolutely ties into how we support our allies abroad. And the gap in technologies is not just things like artificial intelligence, which is software, but we have hardware gaps, and those derive from a technological base, like where we need to be, say, in hypersonics, for example, where you throw a thing really, really fast. But also in that capacity area, I think of the 155-millimeter howitzer shell, which are consumed by sometimes tens of thousands a week in ground combat operations, which are going on in two really bad places right now in the world. So is it safe to say this gap spans basic hardware things, as well as some of these cutting-edge so-called technologies like AI. It definitely does. And your examples of hypersonics and artillery and munitions are excellent ones. I would add to that list space capabilities. And space is a really interesting area highlighted in this year's scorecard because there's such a worrisome trend in this regard that the data really highlights. And one would think, given all of our focus on space technologies, 
at the national level and the national security level, that this is something that is a major area of investment. Yet, what we saw over the past five years, so if you look at DOD-wide spending from 2018 through 2022, investment in space technologies actually decreased. And simultaneously, we see China demonstrating launching space capabilities that a decade ago, only the United States had. So you have to assume the two are correlated. And it's a great example of where data can really highlight what's actually happening, not just what we perceive to be happening because of a certain area of focus or topic of discussion. And why is this spending off in these areas? Is it because DOD is unaware and hasn't made the case to Congress? Or have they made the case to Congress and Congress doesn't believe them? Because there's always a lot of interplay that goes down the, let's say, the intellectual supply chain between appropriations and requirements. Absolutely. And boy, isn't this the year to see that play out. I think there are a lot of factors at play here. One is the just push and pull of changing priorities. And some of that is driven by events that are happening around the world. One would never have projected a few years ago that we would be spending what we are spending today on munitions and trying to restart production lines of capabilities that the United States hasn't used in decades. But here we are. Then there are domestic priorities. So just to stay within the space example for consistency, despite the fact that we've seen overall spending in space areas of technology go down. One area that has seen an increase is in space systems that are related to climate. And that's an understandable area of investment. And those kinds of trade-offs are made within different administrations at different times. And then there's what happens with Congress, which I don't think I could even begin to weigh in on, to be honest. All right. We're speaking with Tara murphy Doherty. She is the CEO of Govini, and we're talking about the National Security Scorecard for this year. So what's the big wake-up call? What has to happen, do you think? A variety of things have to happen, and I'd put a few at the top of the list. The first and foremost is that in addition to all of the policy debate, the statutory debates with Congress, the reforms recommended by a seemingly endless number of commissions. One of the major aspects of acquisition that needs to be fixed is just process improvement. And the defense acquisition process is an area that has been really underserved by commercial technology. Gavini's flagship product, the ARC, aims to bring premium data, high fidelity commercial data, in the form of this digital twin of the industrial base, in addition to modern software in order to help execute the process. That alone will have tremendous impact in modernizing our force. And then the second thing I would highlight is once those systems are fielded, or frankly, along the way of getting those systems fielded, we have to pay attention to the presence of prohibited suppliers in those supply chains and in those platforms and weapon systems. Whether you're talking microelectronics, you're talking AI, or you're talking hardware elements, that is still an area that despite being a major priority of DOD for the past several years, there remains a lot of work to be done. Right. So there is a major acquisition reform commission. They did an interim report a couple of months back, and they said they're going to try to speed up processes and improve these processes. But often these commissions come up with long recommendations and 
a few of them get adopted, but otherwise they become shelfware. So it seems like it's up to the people that are doing the planning within DOD to move on these things in every possible way they can that does not require statutory change. Exactly, Tom. And I think that while it's perfectly reasonable that we'll have experts in this field and uh, officials in the executive branch and members of Congress continue to grapple with what changes need to be made to the process. The reality is the process might be slow, but it does work. Eventually, we not only do get capabilities into the hands of the warfighter, but the United States has the strongest, most able military in the entire world. Now, we've talked about that technological edge dulling and changes that need to happen to make sure that we maintain that position as the world's strongest military. But I would argue we haven't lost that position yet. So if we have a process that works in setting aside the changes that need to be made to it, why don't we just focus on ensuring that it is operationally relevant from a timing perspective and faster and more modern today. And I think that's how the private sector thinks about process improvement. I would call upon the Department of Defense to think similarly. And just a final question. This report is about new technologies from bio to space to artificial intelligence, all those things we've been talking about. But there's also sustainability, maintenance, logistics. You look at the F-22 program, the most capable fighter perhaps ever built, but there's dwindling numbers of them and they're getting rusty and the Air Force can't afford to maintain them at all top operating conditions. So half of them are in mothballs at a given time or being cannibalized. So the long tail that I would lump under logistics, does the report look at that? And isn't that one of the big problems is sustainability here? Absolutely. And you touched on a number of important aspects that are probably not addressed as often. The sustainment of legacy systems. Think about, in addition to the F-22, which is a great example, think about the upcoming Columbia-class submarine. has a 90-year expected lifespan. The vast majority of spending, investment, capabilities that are going to go into that platform are actually going to happen in the sustainment phase of that system. And so sustainment as well as affordability are essential and addressed in the scorecard primarily through the perspective of what suppliers does the United States have today? What capacity do we have in the industrial base and manufacturing ecosystem in order to support these systems? That's an area, too, where we're seeing the numbers begin to decline in terms of both capacity and availability. We can address that nationally through initiatives such as additive manufacturing. But the reality is we need companies to continue to support defense systems and these legacy programs for decades to come. Tara Murphy-Doherty is CEO of Govini. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. 
Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. 
So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.